to look some familiar. The show that remembers that the psychic goth twins in 1987 ITV children's drama The Gemini Factor were called Lee and Leah. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Will McLean. Will, what are you up to and where can we find it? I'm currently up to, I'm writing, helping to write, I should hasten to add, a fourth series of Class Dismissed, which is on the children's BBC. The third series is still on iPlayer, if you fancy dipping into that. And I also contributed some stuff to Mark Wooten's upcoming High and Dry, which is either going to be on E4 or Channel 4. Anyway, that's what I'm doing. How are you? I'm fine, but I don't know if the people listening are going to be fine after your first choice, which is sort of an area of children's TV I don't think you would normally want to go near. style and it will be striking fear into a lot of people listening but will why is that it's because it's it was the used as the theme to once upon a time man which was a a, purported to be an educational it was an educational show it'd be slanderous to say it wasn't uh it was a very good educational show but it had the big problem with once upon a time man was the title sequence which begins with humans descending from the trees and then you know gradually like in a simpsons couch gag they become yeah, it's a man. It's very, it's very patriarchal. Once upon a time, man. You probably got that from the title. He becomes a caveman, then an Egyptian. It, it's surprisingly comprehensive for the time it has. And then eventually, it sort of shows you know human progress accelerating. There's a car, then a train, then it's a plane, then it's a, a like an Apollo 11 style rocket, and then there's lots of sort of note of panic sets in as you watch it, especially as a child because then lots of panicking men run towards the rocket, and the rocket takes off. And it runs, it goes into space, and the Earth blows up. <laughs> it's very unambiguous, and like so, the, the rocket goes, and then the Earth glows orange and blows up. And as if you haven't got the message, it's a French production, I think. The caption "Et la Terre foot" <laughs> comes up over over the Earth, uh, as if to go well, just just in case you didn't get what we were driving at there. The, the world ends. So anyway, look, let's learn some history. And the show never really, you know, to a child. I mean, I, I first saw it, it started in 79, I think, or 80. I think it was shown in 80 over here. But I could never get beyond the title sequence because it was like, that was kind of setting out their stall. They were going, well, human history is going to end any day. So, but, you know, let's have a look back at some of the highlights. And it was such a weird approach for a history show. Well, you say it started with humans coming down from the trees but it actually started with this is the thing that always stayed with me the creation of the universe in sort of blue and black swirls and the supernova and the big bang all kinds of things and then sort of bubbling lava and right in the middle of it barnaby appears genuinely a line drawing of barnaby and at that point i think barnaby hadn't been on for a few years it was something that just existed at the back of my memory i remember thinking what what, 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 what's he doing there? Barnaby had no cultural heft at all at that time. He was I remember him being in the, the 
kids comic Pippin in Playland. Yes. <laughs> but that's the only exposure to Barnaby I had. And that, yeah, so it begins, it's like Barnaby's apocalypse. We begin with the creation <laughs> of the world. Oh, and there's Barnaby. And then there's Armageddon. So it's like, that's, that's all humans did, if they ever need to know. Well, I do remember seeing bits of the programme myself, but I couldn't really follow it because it just seemed to be. I think something must have got lost in translation because every bit of history involved this old geezer with a really, really long white beard, a chimp, and the sort of talking calendar that, like, told them when they got history wrong. To be fair, I found the approach at the beginning so off-putting, I could never quite have faced the show. <laughs> so it was like, it would, it would be quite jokey the tone of that but it's like well what have you done why have you started on this bum note (laughs) why have you 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 can't come back from that it's a really uh, it was just the strangeness of that approach yeah and i've showed it to people you know just you sit and watch them watching it and then they get to the end and they're like i I can't believe this (laughs) this was for children it's like well i'm afraid so yeah well there is a serious question in that, you know, that theme music really wasn't appropriate for kids' programs, but what was it with scary, overdriven organs and TV themes around them? Because there were quite a few things, like World in Action. I think Credo had a similar theme. Credo did, I believe, I yeah. Know, what, what was the craze there? I don't, was it a hangover from prog rock? I don't quite understand it. I think it might have been, because you have Weekend World, which has got that story. Oh, yes, <laughs> From the end of Nantucket Sleigh Ride by Mountain, which is a brilliant, brilliant. Let's use heavy metal. Let's use proto metal to communicate the mood. You know, which is and, and Weekend World. I don't I have a very vague memory of Weekend World, but I seem to remember it was always about the miners' strike, like every week. But it would always be prog rock and, and the miners' strike. But yeah, I think it's a hangover from prog. The rendition of Takata and Fugue on Once Upon a Time Man is really terrifying. They've really gone for it. And also the one on, what was the other show you mentioned just earlier? World in Action. That was harrowing. That was a properly harrowing organ solo. And it was, uh, yeah, I remember that. As soon as you said that, I remember that very vividly being. Performed by Joe Cocker's Grease Band, of course. Is that correct? And that as well had unsettling imagery of yesteryear, because it had to be true of your man going backwards and forwards. It was just the whole mood of it, really. And it was a whole, and it was a mood. I think there was a lot of things on, it was just that step beyond. It was like, you know, and I suppose that Once Upon a Time Man's title sequence, which is what we're talking about here, is the model for that because it was so if you haven't watched the last 10 seconds you go this is this is going to be great and then it isn't it's horrible well it confirms my theory that you should never trust anything that tries to make learning fun but (laughs) on to your next choice now which i don't think was even making fun fun Okay, well, that's one of those theme songs that were all the rage in the 80s, where they explain the entire premise of the programme and goes on for about 17 years. We've only used a bit of it there, so in case you didn't get the name of it, Will, what was that? That was Galaxy High. 
from um, 1986, but it didn't get over here, I think, till about 89, I believe. I have to say, I found, I found Galaxy High enormous fun. I thought it was great. I was far too old to be watching it at the time, but I was at the point in my life where I thought I probably want to end up writing television. So I was very interested in how it was made. I'm a sucker for two things on TV shows I always like. And one is, as you mentioned, a, a theme which explains the show, which in, <laughs> often means you don't have to watch the show. <laughs> it's like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You kind of don't need to see the show after that, or the, the Beverly Hillbillies. But with Galaxy Heights, the same deal. Two kids are taken from Earth. They're meant to be sort of exceptional kids, but one of them really isn't. They go to Galaxy High. And the other thing I'm a sucker for is high school films that aren't, that either ramp it up or do something very different with it. I suppose Battle Royal, the Japanese film, is the, is the very best example of that. It, all, the, all the stereotypes are present. So you've got your geeks, your jocks, your popular girl, uh, your airheads, you know, all the, all the classic American high school folks. And they're all present in Galaxy High as well. And I liked the... I thought Galaxy High was great fun at the time. I, and I thought that it was... I also really like any comedy in space basically so um and anime and i think what even galloping galaxies even well that's that's very much the the best part of the genre but it's the same price to make an animation show set in a galactic high school that it is to make one set in an earthbound high school and i think you know animation can do that well do you remember who any of the characters were i remember some only a lunatic would remember them all there's amy and doyle who are the earth Amy's a SWAT, as we'd call her in this country. And Doyle is a jock. I don't think we have an equivalent word for that here. And they are, they're both quite likeable in their own way. And they get taken to, to Galaxy High. And for some reason, Amy gets on really well. And Doyle doesn't. And there's your premise right there. And I remember, also the thing about Galaxy High is it was done by Chris Columbus, who um, did Home Alone and one of the Harry Potter films and stuff. And it was very much... He wrote Goonies as well. I mean, lots of, you know, I mean, he, he, this is someone with a very good track record. And this is something he did that didn't quite take off. And I think it was slightly ahead of its time. Well, wasn't one of the one of the artists was involved with Ren and Stimpy, weren't they? Is that correct? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't find that until recently, but it seemed to make visual sense in my head. But the main reason I remember is was it was shown as part of the Wide Awake Club over here, and initially they used the full theme song for about three weeks, and then after that they just cut it to a clip of them all chanting "Galaxy Hi, Galaxy Hi." You know, they obviously thought people are sick of this already. It's quite unfortunate because if you turn that over cold, it, it might appear that they're shouting Galaxy Heil. The other thing that's worth mentioning about it is at the time I thought the animation was incredible. And I remember thinking it was really flash. And then you look at it now, and it's, it's, it's not. It's probably not even state-of-the-art for then, but, and I, but I remember it being incredibly slick and, and well-made. Well, I only really remember one episode, which was, this is just wrong on every conceivable level. It's something about, I think Doyle worked in a pizza place sometimes. Yeah, it's the most 80s and place some, you could work. So. Some shifty aliens came in in one and said, can you make a special pizza with Torg on it? And they gave him a box with a kind of creature with eyes in, in it, like staring out mischievously. And he started cooking this thing on the pizza. And it like melded with the pizza and turned into a sort of like humanoid pizza monster, grabbed Amy under its arm and ran off with her. If that wasn't bad enough, <laughs> there were these aliens chasing after it with knives shouting, Tog, Tog! This, this just sounds fantastic. I'm sorry. But this, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is a more from a cartoon, really, isn't it? It's, <laughs> but I can try to make a clear line between that and, and things 
that I then go on to like as a grown-up. So things like Futurama, which I still think is one of the best comedies ever made. Mm. And it's full of moments like Tog, frankly, um, <laughs> and Rick and Morty, I suppose, now at the moment, which is another show that just goes, well, animation can do this, and then and then shows you what it can do. Well, did you also like its sort of close relative Gravedale High, which I think was from around the same time? And what baffled me about that was it was Gravedale High starring Rick Moranis. <laughs> he was in it as a cartoon of Rick Moranis, and I never quite got my head around that. It's those little conceptual leaps that really confuse you as a kid. You're like, well, how, how was it Rick Moranis in it as a cartoon? Was it? And also because you're so used to being ripped off as a kid by it not being Rick Moranis, you know, yeah. and it being like, um, you know. But uh, the other thing that's worth mentioning about Galaxy High is that it's uh, Frank Welker provides some of the voices. I think he's the only member of the voice cast whose name I recognise anyway. Of course, he's the original um, Fred in Scooby-Doo. He's just in everything. Like Google Frank Welker, he's in absolutely everything. He, he does turn up in Futurama, actually, as Nibbler. Well, Nancy Cartwright did some of the voices as well. Is that correct? I was unaware of that, but I presume it's quite a small... But I think Maurice LaMarche is in a couple of them. Anyway, look, there's, there's anime. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because he's in everything. I, I just, at the time, remember thinking that it was, was so fresh-looking. and so Because, like... As you get older, the gloss kind of goes off American things in Britain, and you get a bit cynical. But as a kid, they're kind of amazing, and there's an amazing spirit to them that you like that's quite um, seductive and quite sort of can-do. And I think as a British person, you go, this is, this is amazing. This is everything I can't do. <laughs> you know? I, I don't remember the Tog episode, I'll be honest with you. Do you remember the only other episode I found out anything about was apparently they won the Humanitas Prize for their very special episode, which is an anti-drug episode called The Brain Blaster, where somebody tries to persuade Doyle to cheat in a game of psychic hockey using brain-enhancing drugs. There's always an episode of these shows, I don't know what, where, where they, and it's, it's a very 80s thing where they do that. There's a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where there's Will has speed in his locker, I think, and Carl takes it. <laughs> I don't understand. It's, a very, it's a possibly the most 80s thing they could have done, I think, was have an anti-drugs episode. I think it's a great show. Sad it ran for one season. Before we move on from that, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It said that Don Felder of the Eagles did the theme tune. I presume this is, is Wikipedia vandalism, but I, I couldn't find this sourced anywhere. But um, it, it doesn't seem likely. I mean, he'd have had to sort of break off all of his activities in 1986 to do this. It doesn't doesn't seem the most plausible story, but it could be. I mean, who knows? Well, I'll just say before we move on that one last thing about... I think the Galloping Galaxy theme was actually a parody of those sort of explain the programme in 17 hours theme tunes because it rattled through the premise of the show really quickly. <laughs> and as we said in the song, Galloping Galaxies, which I was really liked. But that was actually a great piece of music. But in absence of anything else to use a clip for your next choice, here's another great piece of music. <laughs> Well, for anyone who doesn't know, that's part of Sofa of My Lethargy by Supergrass, which kind of technically counts, because at one point that was going to be the last single from I Should Coco, and then it wasn't. Nobody remembers that, including the band themselves, apparently. But I'm using that because I don't actually know anything about your next choice, which is, well, Will, what is Inner Sofa? Ah, this is primary school, 
we had a reading lesson at the end of the day where you could pick a book from the library and read it. And the books were, you'd heard of every single book in there. It was all Famous Five, Secret Seven, and the kind of books you get in a, in, in a primary school in the 80s. And there was also a book called In a Sofa that had no words. And it was about a boy who falls down the back of his sofa and is then menaced by various things that live there. And all the things that live there were made of, like there was years before Doctor Who did it, there was a copyright baiting licorice all sorts man. And there was a pair of scissors, I think. And there was you know, change. <laughs> I didn't want all my choices to be like, you know, sort of mockery. This was a really good children's book. I remember, I, think, I can't remember how old I was when I read it, but I remember it. I remember it, I suppose, is the key point here. And I don't remember a lot of other children's books that I read at the time that they just passed me by. And also, I read is a weird word for this because there are no words in it. It was just a series of images. And that was, it was all the more powerful for it. Powerful. <laughs> it was uh, it, it, another odd word to use. But it was, it was an interesting... It's one of the things that you... I, I took literally the point of your podcast being that things that no one else remembers because almost certain nobody remember this and i've never googled it it was just one of those things that I, it stuck with me because it was a it was such an interesting story and it also is one of those stories that is based squarely in things that kids do yeah because they always fall down the back of sofas so it's based on what they do well they do i mean they're never done doing that but me and my sister would regularly have like treasure hunts down the back of the sofa and, and the longer you left it the more interesting it would be because they'd be more, <laughs> you know they'd be like a chick but it was just it's that thing that kids do there's a there's a kid show at the moment because I, I now have a child I end up watching a lot of Sarah and Duck which is a brilliant kid show and there's one in that where they are watching their toys to see if they move and sort of trying to get the drop on them because you know it's that thing that every kid does I think it's, if I look away and I, I suppose Toy Story's exploited that a bit more in a bit more high profile a manner but uh, it, it's done in, in a very low key way and it's the same thing within a sofa I just, I, it's just that thing that if you tell an odd story or an offbeat story or a strange story you are so much more likely to remember it than if you tell a rather dull story or a story that's like another story I, I really like the idea of an, an odyssey down the back of the sofa well going back to what you were saying about fear of toys moving that's reminded me that you know I think everyone has that when they're quite young but mine was really bizarre because it wasn't actually about any toys I had it was if on play school they indicated that say Humperdy had done something while the programme wasn't on <laughs> I really didn't like that I had visions of you know sort of <laughs> little Ted and Jemima walking down the street out of the jurisdiction <laughs> of Fred Harris and Mackie Henderson you know Lord knows what they would have got up to you know that Humpty wouldn't speak. It would just be <laughs> silent. It would whatever he did would be. There'd be no voice attached to it. It'd be horrible. But yeah, it's that thing of and kids worry about those kind of things. And I really, really liked it. I just remember. I can remember the format of the book really vividly and the way it looked. And it was a paperback. But I just remember it being really strange. There's literally only one mention of it on the whole internet, which is somebody trying to flog a copy for <laughs> a ludicrous amount of money on Amazon. And from that, I found out it was. From 1974, it was written by Ron Samford, and bizarrely, given that there's no words in it, it's part of the Language in Action series. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got a scan of the back cover, and the blurb on it says, Language in Action consists of books and other educational materials specifically designed to develop listening, speaking, reading and writing skills 
In the sofa is a core book at the pre-literacy level. It provides practice in left-to-right orientation and top-to-bottom scansion, while developing the ability to follow an eventful story in pictures of varied complexity. Does that chime with how you remember it? I'm not sure. The thing I, about it is I came to it without any context, so stripped away of all of that. If someone had said it's it's for pre-literacy, it's for uh, teaching kids how to put images with you know story. You know, if there'd been if I'd read any of that or or there'd been any of that present, it wouldn't have been the same experience. I, I really like it when something is stripped of context and it becomes odd, and that's a very good example of that because it's so it was such a strange experience. It was almost like going down a Soviet hell just to find that book and go right. And that's happened to someone a friend of mine when in the night garden started i was aware of it as a thing but had never seen it my friend got me a birthday card that had eagle piggle on it and he was bent round sideways so the card sort of he was he had to sort of accommodate himself on the card i'm doing it i, I don't know why i'm doing it you can't see <laughs> me i'm stretching my head over like that you can hear it in my voice um and it was him with his sort of weird david cameron face and then the caption all aboard the ninky nong and I had no context for it. I was like, where did you get this? Does like, this come from another world? I mean, I don't know, I don't know what it's promoting or what it describes. Or like, and it had some equally baffling thing written inside it. It's like, what, what, what is this? Where does it come from? And I love that idea. It's like, it's, it's so much more powerful if you don't know where stuff has originated from. And I think that's the, or I'm uh, the inner sofa effect. That's like when I went to buy, I think it may even have been the Stone Rose of Second Coming. It must have been because I went to HMV to buy that. There was a queue that I assumed was to buy Second Coming, but it was full of very unlikely looking people, you know, very young children, sort of harangued mm. looking parents. Thought, this is quite odd. And it turned out they were queuing a row of videos for Timon and Pumbaa, who at that point, because, you know, however old I was, I had no interest in Disney films. I had no interest in The Lion King. Are are they from The Lion King? They're from something. But I just didn't know what they were. I just remember seeing them and thinking, no, that is not a thing. What? Why are you all (laughs) waiting for this? It doesn't exist. And I went on to buy a disappointing blues album. (laughs) 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 <laughs> the thing is, considering in your life how many times you're faced with the genuinely extraordinary, it's not very often. And you, there's a great piece of writing by M. John Harrison, a science fiction writer, where he talks about just channel surfing one night. And he turns over the channel and there's, there's people have made this sculpture. It's like a metal cast sculpture. And it's just got all bits coming off it. And it doesn't make any visual sense to him. He's like, what, what are they doing? This is amazing. And it's like, it's, it's this hallucinogenically weird object. That's sort of, and as it cools down, they start knocking bits off it. And it's all the sprue that you get in cast moulding. And it's just at the end, it's just like, you know, a sort of couple of sub Rodan pair of figures, you know, kissing or something. And it's like, oh, okay. And it's just, it's, um, yeah. It's that, <laughs> and it's just that you know. So it's that experience of of getting something without context, which is is valuable. I think it's nice that Inner Sofa's only got one mention on the internet because that means that hopefully someone somewhere will be baffled by Inner Sofa, but I somehow doubt it. Okay, well, we're pulling back out from down the back of the sofa, going further and further and further outward until we get to your next choice, which is represented by this. The picnic near the lakeside in Chicago is the start of a lazy afternoon, early one October. We begin with a scene one meter wide, which we view from just one meter away. 
Now, every 10 seconds, we will look from 10 times farther away, and our field of view will be 10 times wider. This square is 10 meters wide, and in 10 seconds, the next square will be 10 times as wide. Our picture will center on the picnickers, even after they've been lost to sight. Right, well, I know what that is. I'm fairly sure a few people listening will know what that is, but a lot won't. So, Will, what's going on there? That is a clip from a 1977 film called Powers of Ten, which does exactly what it describes. It's a couple having a picnic in Chicago, I think it is, next to Lake Michigan, and it pulls out slowly at first, and then it just keeps pulling out, and it's framed as you go out by exactly how many powers of 10 you're moving out so it begins at one meter squared and it ends up at obviously at some horrendously high number where the only lights are sort of individual galaxies or it's just the milky way or something and then it goes back in so it goes back in at like triple speed and then it dives into one of the picnickers hands i think and then it goes into the proteins and the molecules and then eventually it, it just doesn't make any coherent visual sense because they've gone beyond uh, yeah everything's just just basic subatomic particles it's one of the most interesting 10 minutes and 35 seconds i think it is i'm saying that because i've seen it on youtube that many times but it's another thing i saw as a kid it's almost impossible now to describe it in the age of youtube how if something was on and it was on like screen test. I think I probably saw this on or something like that. That it was gone. You would never see it again. And you had to describe it to your friends. You go and it keeps pulling out of Chicago. And you're like, well, what, what, what? Why, why was this good? But if you, for the people who've actually seen it, especially as kids, because kids are obsessed with that kind of thing. They're obsessed with scale and and the cosmos and where we fit into it. And that's another thing I think that gets lost as you grow up if you're not careful. That you lose that sense of asking questions i always like things like that and it was also incredibly disconcerting <laughs> because it's so um it's so real i guess is the word i'm looking for it's there's not a word of, you know there's no, none of the images you see are, are false they're all obviously animated they're, they're generated artificially not by computers at the time but i think they were computer assisted i don't know they're a representation of everything that really is so there's an unarguable sort of weirdness to it almost as if you and as kids i don't know whether you did you ever find a textbook or a, a book in a second hand shop that belonged to a kid and it has that thing in the title page where they've gone this belongs to charlotte benson of nine the road and they go like great britain the solar system <laughs> the, the, it was that it was the equivalent of that it was the, but with, you know maybe like a million dollars or whatever and um i since talking to you about this i found out there's another one which i think is even more eerie which was called cosmic zoom which was made by the national film board of canada and that's got a mosquito in it a mosquito feed, feeding on a boy's hand <laughs> Again, things you didn't want to see. The primary feeling I had when I watched these things was, and I remember this really vividly at the time, was make it stop. Yeah. <laughs> like you'd be watching it, and you're like, it's still going on. Like it's it's gone beyond all sense and reason now. They're, 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 where are they going? And it would, and it did that in both directions. And I think as a kid, it was that first exposure to something that on television where you'd go, I'd find that genuinely unsettling. Well, I remember having similar thoughts about. In the 70s, for some reason, there were lots of films like this, you know, sort of nine, ten-minute films based on a scientific principle, showing off about camera work they could use, and with very little context or explanation, it just went straight in, started happening straight out again. 
often with no credits at the end. And they just turn up on TV when things have run short or whatever. And the one that yes, I always remember, yeah. you might remember it too, because Granada used it a lot, was there was a guy on that really sort of glary 60mm film, you know, with like sort of those big bursts of sunlight all over the frame. It was a guy just in at the North or South Pole or something, just turning up and doing extreme winter sports. In the kind of, you know, the the helmet, the goggles and everything. There's no context to it. I just remember sitting there thinking, who is this man? How did he get there? What is he doing? How will he ever get home? And it didn't explain anything. No, 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 no. There would be no explanation for it. I'm sure that at least one of these, I, I do definitely, I mean, I, you know, your whole podcast is predicated on you don't definitely remember. But I seem to remember with a certain degree of certainty. I think Cosmic Zoom was on screen test or something similar you know this i'm not i'm not going to claim any expertise about this but i remember it being within the context of a show where they went, we're going to look at this now and so you'd watch it whereas powers of 10 was one of those things like the skier where it was just oh have a look at this no not even that there just was no right well that's you know we're running a bit short so let's have a look at the cosmos you know <laughs> from both ends and it was, it was such a strange thing do you remember there's one that there was a, a there was a hippie frog who sang a song about all the people got to live together. Yes, that was the Butterfly Ball, as mentioned by Stephen O'Brien in his appearance on Looks Unfamiliar, where it was actually by Roger Glover from Deep Purple. So I remember that being... But um, I, that was sort of just ignorable to me. <laughs> it wasn't like... You know, we, I, I, I sort of was familiar with Roger Glover. <laughs> <laughs> I was more familiar with Roger Glover than I was with seeing the Milky Way <laughs> at great speed. It was that, that sort of bounced off me, but the, it was Powers of Ten, and more particularly, I think now, now I think about it, Cosmic Zoom. But though I did see both of them, I'm sure, I'm fairly sure as a child I saw both of them, and you just go, ah, oh, this is why are they? It didn't seem to bother adults. Well, I'm not going to suggest Roger Glover ever saw the Cosmos at high speed, but speaking of expanding minds, this brings us round to your next choice. Yes, and I've no idea what he was talking about. Have you, Sweet? <laughs> a tree has got roots. <laughs> But we've all got paws. Yes, you're right, sweet. But Matthew definitely said, I'm going to find my roots. Didn't he, Sooty? Yes, I'm going to find my roots. What can he mean? Okay, well, that was a bit of Sooty and Sweep talking there. And regrettably, Sue as well. But why in particular are we listening to Sooty and Sweep? Because surely everyone remembers everything about them, right? Not only one of my first television memories, but I think one of my first memories that I I have is of an episode of Sooty and Sweet which starts when it was in the studio with Matthew Corbett I seem to remember they had an audience show I'm not I don't claim to be one of the world's leading Sooty and Sweet people right? <laughs> nobody's saying that. But I, I remember that there was a kind of studio set up and there was a bit of banter with Sooty and Matthew and then they said we're going to expand Sweep's brain and I remember I was eating my dinner watching this I was like what, what's, what's happening and the plan was that they were going to and they showed a sort of x-ray of of sweet what? with a little pea brain in it, like a silhouette and they go well, we're going to use this machine to expand his brain i remember this really vividly and the joke is it backfires and sweep is made really tall which is a kind of a cop-out because of that, if you're committed to the brain idea that's what you want to see working but the main thing about it was i remember being I, i'm slightly obsessed by I, i've said that about three times now and nobody's that obsessed by anything but i'm interested in jokes that are in the wrong place and this 
as a kid really felt like a joke that was in the wrong place because it was like sort of nauseating that they were gonna gonna do this to Sweet. I always felt Sweet Sweet wasn't especially stupid. He didn't have a have a problem with his brain. It felt really un- <laughs> the whole thing felt, felt really un- sort of unnecessary. I mean, it's, it's but it was that thing. And the big example I've talked to about this with other friends is, as a kid, I hated it in cartoons when characters had an electric shock and you could see their skeleton because that felt like an intrusion of a weird different level of reality into into a cartoon and this felt like that it felt like a joke from or just a thing that should have been not in the show well i have a troubling half memory of the sussy show which very few people i've met seem to remember at all was i must have been on 1979 i think it's one again it's one of the very earliest things i remember sort of being consciously aware of on tv was they had a a series long storyline about a terrorist called the black hand who was committing all these like (laughs) shocking crimes and leaving basically leaving threats for matthew sooty and sweep in sort of you know ransom letter you know uh, letters cut out of newspapers and in the last episode they found him and it was bob todd <laughs> that was the most bizarre thing about Again, him but... it was of all the people it's bob todd yeah. <laughs> but i remember it getting quite alarming at some points you know there were cliffhangers it said like we will get you matthew signed the black hand you know writing kids tv you can either it goes you show kids too much and you either do that in a right way or a wrong way one of the reasons the, the reboot of Doctor Who was so successful, I think, was that it was, aimed, it was aimed at a family audience, but it also had that thing that kids really liked overhear adult conversations. So it had stuff in it that you kind of will overhear as a kid, but you shouldn't, like, you know, convers- gay jokes and conversations about, you know, just, just people's lives, basically. And that's brilliant. And that's a, a, re- a good example of that done really well. Whereas something like Bob Todd being a terrorist <laughs> <laughs> strikes me as being on the other end of the spectrum where you've miscalculated um, i think russell t davis did that with why don't you didn't he? he he turned it into a soap which was sort of brilliant well that's quite like something i've only i've heard about that i wish i'd been able to see at the time was you now obviously i knew there was zig and zag and i knew there were Rodge and podge who were done by the same guys i didn't know that they actually came from the same program which was, a, was an irish program called the den which i think was a human presenter in zig and zag and dust in the turkey but they found, I think it was Podge in the storeroom, thinking he was eventually the quiz dummy. And he would come to life when they weren't on the screen and steal things and so on. Apparently, for this went on for about six months, the children were writing in saying, you probably don't know, but Podge is moving when you're not there. They say, what load of rubbish, that's, that's not happening. And then he started becoming more evil. And then eventually kidnapped Dustin and dressed up as him with stuck some feathers on his head and put a cup on his mouth for a beak. And then later they had a storyline based on the Max Headroom broadcast hijack where a dog <laughs> kept breaking into the transmission and just quacking at the screen. Yes, the kids are guaranteed to have heard of the Max Headroom <laughs> broadcast. Ed and Outcho on CBBC did do a very strong parody of Saxgate while that was happening, where an old lady thought they said bottom when they said button, and they got into loads of trouble, and there were like tabloid reporters waiting for them behind potted plants and so on. And um, Outcho sent his official statement out to the press, which was a drawing of a dog standing on a bus. See, all of this is, is marvellous. There's something really exciting about all of that stuff, but it's just if it's, if it's misjudged and but not stating the rules, because kids are very keen on the rules. 
I think as a, a lot of kids now, you know, they, they watch things like The Simpsons, I suppose, is a good example because it's still really popular with kids. And they know that the characters are all flawed, that they probably have secrets, they have an inner life, you know, they're not what they appear. And as long as you know the rules, you can sit back and enjoy that. But you don't want Sweep's brain to come <laughs> into that to be an issue, you know, and like, uh, we're desperately worried about Sweep's intelligence, so we're going to try out this machine that seems very odd. <laughs> course of action and we you know we're talking about it now as adults at a safe distance but at the time when you're a kid you can't quite tell the difference between and puppets seem like a pretty safe pair of hands yeah. well i remember i've never been able to place this but i remember very very faint memories and i must have been incredibly young when this happened was it must have been on emu's broadcasting company but I got frightened that it had to be switched off when emu had an operation and it wasn't that the actual thing was frightening it just didn't seem to me like, Emu should be going into hospital. I didn't like Emu being in that scenario. It also begs loads of questions. It's like, you know, Charlie Brooker's thing about the Dolmio puppet. Because like, <laughs> they eat real food. It's, that <laughs> thing of, it's exactly the, the same thing. It's sort of, you know, what, why? Is it, does Emu have felt in them? Does that work for him? I mean, so, but yeah, it's it's that I would be very alarmed at the idea of being you going into hospital for surgery as well as be specific, especially if Rod was operating on you. <laughs> it just seems it just so many questions for that. It's, it's the, you know, just give him big purple spots and a particular comedy thermometer. Yeah. And one of those when when they used to draw sort of a handkerchief tied in a knot round someone's head, like yeah. like Winker Watson, because he always had a gum boil, whatever one of those was. <laughs> the only other example I can come up with this is there's the episode of the goodies where it's the watership down one it's the animal liberation one and there's a bit in that where bill oddie boils a rabbit oh yes yeah. and you, you see him like literally chewing its spine <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's a horrible joke and the rest of it is is really funny and really you know there'd be nothing in there and there's that horrible weird joke in there and it's like it's often this thing and i know the goodies was not squarely aimed at children and it had its dark moments but it just seems like an awful sort of miscalculation. Well, moving on from imagined puppet horror, onto your last choice, which sounds disturbingly close to home. On her way to work one morning Down the path alongside the lake Tender-hearted a woman saw a poor half-frozen snake His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with a dew Oh, well, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you Take me in, oh, tender woman Take me in, for heaven's sake Take me in, tender woman Snake. Okay, well that was Northern Soul favourite The Snake by Al Wilson, which we're not talking about the dances that people did tonight, because that was all that, well, equally alarming sort of spinning round on one foot business, but this was a dance called The Snake, which has a rather alarming backstory, I believe. I have this memory, okay, when I'm very, very small, and I'm watching the television, and there's a dance craze coming over from America. And it's that thing as well, which we'll return to in a minute, of stuff coming over from America to kill us. It's a real trope from the late 70s, early 80s. It's stuff coming from America, and it's going to kill all of us. But the snake was one of those things, and it was a dance. And I, I, is this a false memory? I don't know. 
I honestly don't know. But I remember the dance so vividly. It's like people doing this thing with their hips and they're shaking their heads. They're shaking their heads really violently. And they said that the blood vessels in people's heads had expanded and people died doing this dance. That's kind of all I remember. I remember, just remember the dance really vividly. And I, I, that's all I recall. There's a news report about Would it. Would it have been on Nationwide by any chance? As if they would have passed up the chance to feature a moral panic on that. Precisely. But it's it's so plausible in my mind and it did exist, even though it may not have done. It's that thing of stuff coming over from America. And, and, and it got me thinking about this. Like killer bees were coming. They were always coming summer people go the killer bees are on their way and it was like it was taken as a thing that everyone would know what they were they're a real thing i mean they are a real thing but they're not you know it's like they really have to be provoked well sometimes it was things like the beastie boys or snoop dogg or beavis yes. and butthead as well beavis and butthead and, and yeah i definitely remember the beastie boys were like it's you know it's all over now and sometimes it was quite refreshing when it was a homegrown thing i remember the, the when frankie goes to hollywood we're on top of People were like, oh, right, it's all civilization's ended. You know, it's like, these guys are going to come along, and, and after even 30 seconds of watching them, society will be over. And it was, you know, and it was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It was around the time as well in the early 80s, Mount St. Helens erupted. So there was that as well. Ash Cloud was coming to kill us. And there was a heat wave. There was definitely a heat wave. And this is, this is above and beyond all the well known things that were, really were a problem and still are, but like crack and AIDS, and those things which did originate in America, or the North American continent. And the idea was that, you know, but it was these things as well that were, that were lumped in with that, because it was such a, a perfect news story. Well, I did look up the snake on bustermove.com, which it was me, <laughs> I had this to say about it. The snake is a dance move where the dancer sways their head and shoulders around side to side. So you were right. And then it added, the move is famously known to be the signature dance move of lead vocalist Axl Rose of rock band Guns N' Roses. Famously, you know, yeah. If there's one thing that springs to mind when you say Axl Rose, it's it's that. That's even that's even more misremembered than the gibberish I came out with earlier. Your memory is so unreliable, but I just remember watching, and we had a black and white television, so I remember it being in black and white. I remember watching it and thinking, why would anyone do this? And it's the genuineness of my thinking that makes it more convincing, where I like had a proper reaction to it, going, why? Well, just don't do the dance. Also, as well, like, of youth culture things that were coming to kill us. Well, I mean, one homegrown one, which I have mentioned on here a couple of times before, was even as a child, I was struck by the fact that people weren't just getting worked up about the actual films of Video Nasty. It was almost as though they thought videotapes had some kind of supernatural power that they could get you while you were asleep, you know. That there was some force coming from beyond the tape that could attack your mind or body, even computers as well. Computers definitely had this, and they never quite shed it. I mean, and quite rightly, I think, because you know, your, your webcam can be hacked and all this stuff now. But at the time, it was like if you touch it, it'll read your DNA or something. And it was, uh, yeah, but it was the same with videotapes. They were things of fear that you regard with suspicion. But one thing you don't get now, in some ways it's a sad loss. I mean, the video nasties is a similar thing to this, is a fear of what you don't get to see, what they are stopping you from doing or experiencing or seeing. Because, you know, you can, in inverted commas, ban anything now and people can get hold of it. But I remember being, well, you mentioned Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I don't think I heard Welcome to the Pleasure Dome at the time. Trying to get hold of that would have been considered a step too far in the midst of all the controversy. I mean, obviously, you'd heard the single, but not the album. And they're all wild tales of, you know, what happened on it. 
which weren't yeah. quite true. But beyond that, if a film was banned, that was it. You didn't see it. And you yeah, just heard you reports. I think, yeah. wasn't there some... Wasn't Gremlins delayed? Obviously, it's a great film, but you imagine the very different film. Yeah, it's stuff you can't have. You immediately want it. Part of the reason that Frankie Goes to Hollywood was so huge was because you were suddenly told you couldn't have it. And you, it was dangerous in some way. And it became incredibly... It's like at school when they ban a craze that everyone's into or appears to be into and then it just blows up hugely because it's forbidden this doesn't help us with the snake i, I just don't know, where it, I don't know where it came from i don't know what it, why the snake uh, yeah I, I honestly cannot say where it came from but just still on that theme i just to see your reaction to this though because i bet it was the same as mine now i know you will have read this very early on in the existence of doctor who magazine there's a two-part feature called unsuitable for children question mark it was a rundown of all the complaints that have been over the years, you know, like the cliffhanger and the deadly assassin and things like that. Did you read that and were you quite frightened at the end of it? About just at the thought of all this stuff you hadn't seen, you thought you wouldn't see, that sounded much worse on the printed page than it actually was. I do remember that feeling, I'm, but I, I remember it with Doctor Who. And I, remember, I remember it with everything. I remember it, and also I don't think it helps because you, you invent things which are far worse. So when you do see the actual thing, it's kind of vaguely disappointing. Are you going to tell me now there's something in Doctor Who magazine where there's a, a, a dance craze called the snake? That <laughs> snake dance? That's entirely where I've got it from. But I that, can't it, believe it neither that. of us thought about that joke. Well, that's the other thing as well. Is if you Google snake dance, it's a blind alley because it's, it's, it's not going to work. I remember being very curious as to who would go out and dance this dance, this strange mythical dance <laughs> that may or may not be real well just as a, a final note on that do you remember what break machine's second single was after street dance uh oh um i might be able to hang on i'm not googling it or anything i'm really genuinely thinking about this you're gonna let your body move street dance no that was street, uh, uh, street dance <laughs> that's that's true. I'm, I'm, I'm i know tim i know i'm just going i'm going through that <laughs> it's my mental library i'll go through it how i like <laughs> Um, uh, no, oh, no, go on. It was Breakdance Party. So, you know, That's really that. messing with the formula there. It would have to be something like that. I mean, what was Scatman John's second single? I mean, who that knows? was Scatman's World. It was Scatman's World. Yeah. <laughs> what was Guru Josh's second single? Uh, that I do know. That was uh, Whose Law Was yeah. It Anyway? I didn't own it, but I remember how it went. Oh, I've got a signed copy of it. I remember it was a series of rhetorical questions. Are we living in a world of law? Whose law can it be? Well, on that note, remember, kids, don't do the snake. <laughs> Will, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Top of the Box by Tim Worthington. The complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes. More details at timworthington.org.